Like anyone else, I am subject to motivated reasoning. I've always told myself that I would rather know the truth than live in blissful illusion. For this reason, I could never hold on to religious convictions that strained my rationality. I might have an easier, happier life if I accepted the gospel according to John, but I don't have it in me to delude myself, not even if it would be for my own good. There are certain ideas, though, that even I hang on to, that I probably give a better share of odds than I can rightfully justify. One such idea is freedom of the will. Despite seemingly watertight arguments that demonstrate its implausibility, I not only live as if I have free will, but I'm actually convinced on some level that it exists. Another precious idea is continuity of the self, that I am today the same being that I was yesterday and the day before. I don't know whether this is true. Maybe I just came into existence right this instant. Maybe access to the brain's memories and associations just gives me the mistaken view that things are otherwise. My sense of continuity is unfalsifiable. I just can't stand the thought that it isn't real. The implications are too devastating. My aspiration, though, is to be rational and unbiased in my thinking, to move toward the truth, whatever the cost in sacred cow's gourd. Amazingly, Daniel Dennett, always a contrarian, takes an opposite tack when it comes to the mystery of consciousness. Dennett is an outspoken atheist and materialist. He has a brilliant and creative mind, but it seems to me that he is not without the capacity for motivated reasoning. His motives, like so much of his intellectual work, are the inverse of self-serving religious apologetics. Instead of being biased in the direction of self-preservation and aggrandizement, of a kind which might come from a belief in the immortal soul, reincarnation, or karmic justice, it would seem that he is motivated to achieve a solid, objective understanding of the world, no matter the cost incurred. Dennett argues a form of illusionism in his book Consciousness Explained, or as Searle has aptly called it, Consciousness Denied. Dennett makes behaviorist arguments about human psychology. In a chapter called Qualia Disqualified, he writes, quote, When we do make these comparisons in our mind's eyes, what happens according to my view? Something strictly analogous to what would happen in a machine, a robot, unquote. Dennett calls the robot Cad Blind Mark I. He goes on, quote, Suppose we put a color picture of Santa Claus in front of it and asked it whether the red in the pictures is deeper than the red of the American flag, something it already has stored in memory. This is what it would do. Retrieve its representation of old glory from memory and locate the red stripes. They are labeled number 163 in its diagram. It would then compare this to the red of the Santa Claus suit in the picture in front of its camera, which happens to be transduced by its color graphic systems as red number 172. It would compare the two reds by subtracting 163 from 172 and getting 9, which it would interpret, let's say, as showing that Santa Claus red seems somewhat deeper and richer than American flag red. This story is deliberately oversimple to dramatize the assertion I wish to make. It is obvious that the CAD-blind Mark I doesn't use a figment to render its memory, but neither do we. The CAD-blind Mark I probably doesn't know how it compares the colors of something seen with something remembered, and neither do we. The CAD-blind Mark I has, I will allow, a rather simple, impoverished color space, with few of the associations or built-in biases of a human being's personal color space, but aside from this vast difference in dispositional complexity, there is no important difference. I could even put it this way. There is no qualitative difference between the CAD-blind's performance of such a task and our own. 
the discriminative states of the CAD blind Mark I have content in just the same way and for just the same reasons as the discriminative brain states I have put in place of Locke's ideas. The CAD blind Mark I certainly doesn't have qualia, at least that is the way I expect lovers of qualia to jump at this point. So it does indeed follow from my comparison that I am claiming that we don't have qualia either. The sort of difference that people imagine there to be between any machine and any human experiencer is one I am firmly denying. There is no such sort of difference. There just seems to be." Unquote. It looks to me as if faced with the insurmountable task of reconciling consciousness with the materialist conception of the universe, Dennett chooses the easy way out, deny the premise. His arguments are largely waged against dualism, which often amounts to a straw man. By ushering us collectively into the fabled Cartesian theater, he hopes to burn it down with all of us inside and claim victory over the philosophy of mind. But a great many of us are not Cartesian dualists, and yet we see the hard problem of consciousness as a critical puzzle to solve. Is it paradoxical to observe that the contents of consciousness are entirely illusory while denying that consciousness is an illusion? The claim of illusionist is that consciousness itself is an illusion that we don't actually experience content. I must admit that I don't understand the claim. My immediate thought is that only a zombie could make such a statement, that a person who denies seeing colors and hearing music couldn't possibly be mistaken. There's not much room for confusion. Either one has subjective experiences, or one doesn't. I do. That's the thing of which I am most certain. But I gather that the illusionist philosophers are denying my experiences, and not just their own. They aren't saying that those of us who claim we are having experiences are somehow different from them. They aren't even saying that we just think we are different from them. They, too, notice that it seems to them they are seeing colors and feeling pains and so on. The operative word is seems. When I say that the contents of the mind are illusory, I mean this to apply to the relationship between objects in the physical world and the contents of the mind which refer to them. The way a banana appears in front of me has an illusory relationship to the real banana. Objectively speaking, a banana is not yellow, and it isn't sweet. Those characteristics do not inhere in the fruit, but in my mind. In the presence of a banana, my body picks up signals which my brain responds to. The resultant actions of the brain produce the yellowness and the sweetness. We all know this who are capable of dreaming of a banana. Thus, the actions of the brain, which are the proximal cause of my banana experience, are necessary and sufficient for such occurrences. I observe that the relationship that obtains between a real-world banana and a corresponding banana experience is one of illusion. This is not dualism, though. The reason is that there is an identity in the physical world with the contents of consciousness. It's just not the apparent one. The banana in the world is not the banana in my mind. The one in my mind is a thing in the brain. So the physical identity is something in the brain. It's not a material in the brain, a banana-shaped specter or essence. For me, the question is not whether there is some physical identity to mental phenomena, but only what that identity is. According to my framework, the identity is a structure of causality. But the topic for today is more basic, more fundamental. What should we make of illusionism? This philosophical stance finds a space for distinction between what seems and what is conscious. I observe a distinction, as I have already explained, between what seems and what is in the world. Again, the operative word is seems. Influenced by Descartes, I define what is conscious as exactly what seems. 
the banana seems to be yellow and sweet. The illusionist therefore goes a full step further to claim that it only seems to me that it seems to me that the banana is yellow and sweet. It doesn't actually seem yellow and sweet. It only seems that it does. You see what I mean? I don't follow this line of reasoning at all. The phenomenon we are interested in is the seeming itself. Dennett's philosophy rescues us from the infinite regress of homunculi and delivers us an infinite regress of seemingness. An illusion is an appearance that differs from reality. The appearances are real. They are real seemings. I don't believe any philosopher in the field is claiming more than that for them. Explaining qualia away, denying them, is ridiculous. It's like Descartes pondering, I think, but it doesn't follow that I am. So why did the illusionists do it? By denying the problem of consciousness, these philosophers achieve a complete picture of the universe. They get rid of the unpalatable notion of dualism, and all is right with the material world. It is my contention that aspects of the conscious experience are themselves illusory. That is, they do not match reality. These are the sweetness of fruit, the redness of roses, the softness of pillows, the warmth of fire, the pain of injury, the sorrow of loss. But I do not claim that redness and softness and pain and sorrow do not exist. They clearly exist. Something physical occurs in the brain, and it is somehow identical with these qualia. If this is not the case, then qualia cannot exist in the physical sense. I don't see any way for something to exist, but not in a physical sense. An argument can be made that behaviorists enabled the advancement of psychology as a true science in the 20th century. In Affective Neuroscience, Jacques Pangsep wrote, quote, In its early stages, behaviorism was a solid and useful addition to American psychology because it brought with it a desperately needed empirical and conceptual rigor. No longer were mere verbal concepts and unseen attributes of mind a sufficient basis for explaining behavior. Rather, behavior was seen to arise from objective occurrences and contingencies in the environment. Lawful relations were finally established between specific environmental events and patterns of behavior emitted by organisms. Mentalistic concepts such as feelings and thoughts were erased from the official lexicon of psychology. At the time these changes occurred, they were healthy ones. An earlier psychology had reached the sorry state where ill-defined verbal conceptions, especially labels for various instincts, were too widely used as explanations for behavior. Behaviorists generated a remarkable series of major accomplishments, among the most important being the general laws of learning." Panksepp goes on to say, quote, Once the fundamental environment-behavior relations were worked out, behaviorism should have encouraged ever stronger connections to surrounding levels of analysis, biological principles below and psychological principles above the behavioral ones that had been established. This would have been the natural evolution of the field. Unfortunately, rather than changing with the times, the tenets of behaviorism became dogma. The intellectual wagons were drawn together into ever-tightening circles and an intellectual battle was waged with the rest of the field that desired to seek broader and deeper knowledge about problems of mutual interest. This failure to accept the obvious led to the intellectual rebellion that we now know as the cognitive revolution." Unquote. One of the key theses of his book is the need to unite the domains of mind, brain, and behavior by the integration of psychological, behavioral, and neuroscientific approaches. I agree. By analogy, none of us can deny the fruits afforded to us by modern physical science. We enjoy electrical appliances and information technology, vaccines and antibiotics, 
The materialist approach, the objectivity-only picture of the world, has been remarkably successful. The advent of this approach can be attributed to Galileo, at least according to Philip Goff, the author of Galileo's Error. Goff writes, quote, One of Galileo's most significant contributions to the scientific revolution was his radical declaration of 1523 that mathematics is to be the language of science. Unquote. Here, quoting Galileo, Philosophy is written in this grand book, the universe, which stands continually open to our gaze, but it cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed. It is written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one wanders about in a dark labyrinth. Goff continues, quote, why had previous thinkers not framed their theories of nature in mathematical language? The problem was that before Galileo, philosophers took the world to be full of what philosophers call sensory qualities, things like colors, smells, tastes, and sounds. And it's hard to see how sensory qualities could be captured in the purely quantitative language of mathematics." Unquote. Galileo apparently solved the problem by proposing that material objects do not actually have sensory qualities. They only have size, shape, location, and motion. Things like taste and color do not exist as characteristics of material objects. Those things, rather, exist in the soul. As a result of this analysis, we must have a dualistic universe. We see, though, that even Galileo did not deny these qualities. The illusionist philosophers deny them altogether. Are these the choices? Must we either believe in dualism or reject the phenomenon of consciousness? I don't think we must. Philip Goff seems to agree with me. He cites the work of Bertrand Russell and Arthur Eddington in the early 20th century to suggest a solution, a panpsychist solution. Goff relays the following from Eddington's book, The Nature of the Philosophical World, in which Eddington writes, quote, If we search the examination papers in physics and natural philosophy for the more intelligible questions, we may come across one beginning something like this. An elephant slides down a grassy hillside. The experienced candidate knows that he need not pay much attention to this. It is only put in to give an impression of realism. He reads on. The mass of the elephant is two tons. Now we are getting down to business. The elephant fades out of the problem, and a mass of two tons takes its place. What is this two tons, the real subject matter of the problem? It is the reading of the pointer when the elephant was placed upon a weighing machine. Let us pass on. The slope of the hill is 60 degrees. Now the hillside fades out of the problem and an angle of 60 degrees takes its place. What is 60 degrees? There is no need to struggle with mystical conceptions of direction. 60 degrees is the rendering of a plumb line against the divisions of a protractor. And so we see that the poetry fades out of the problem. And by the time the serious application of exact science begins, we are left with only pointer readings." Unquote. So Goff uses examples such as this to make the point that physics tells us nothing whatever about the intrinsic nature of matter. Instead, physics tells us what matter does. He says that physical science is restricted to telling us about the behavior of particles, fields, space-time, and so on, and nothing about their intrinsic natures. This is, of course, a feature of physical science, not a bug. But I immediately recognize the parallel with behaviorism in psychology. Goff writes, quote, there is a strong case that panpsychism is the simplest theory consistent with what we directly know about the nature of matter. Eddington's starting point is as follows. 1. Physical science tells us absolutely nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter. 
and 2. The only thing we know about the intrinsic nature of matter is that some of it, i.e. the matter inside of brains, has an intrinsic nature made up of forms of consciousness. It is hard to really absorb these two facts as they are diametrically opposed to the way our culture thinks about science, but if we manage to do so it becomes apparent that the simplest hypothesis concerning the intrinsic nature of matter outside of brains is that it is continuous with the intrinsic nature of matter inside of brains in the sense that both inside and outside of brains matter has an intrinsic nature made up of forms of consciousness." Unquote. I kind of like Philip Goff's reasoning, but I find a flaw in it. The flaw from my perspective is in the reduction of the human brain, or more specifically that portion of brain matter which is characterized by consciousness, to simply matter. What if there was some other physical identity in the brain? I have encountered arguments which favor a field, for example. I've seen functional proposals which would have consciousness be a property of computation. My own proposal has to do with causality. Furthermore, it seems like a leap to me to necessitate taking consciousness all the way to the level of the atom, or further. In chemistry, a molecule is an arrangement of different atoms which come together to exhibit some physical properties. How much arranging of physical constituents is necessary for the emergence of consciousness? After all, the brain is not a big, mushy amalgam. It is orderly. And I observe the ordered nature of the contents of my consciousness, too. Moreover, I am not always conscious. The matter of my brain persists as I doze in dreamless sleep or under general anesthesia. The rational approach is to investigate the contrast between brains with consciousness and brains without. So I am skeptical of Goff's panpsychist conclusions. This section of the episode began with a question. Must we either believe in dualism or reject consciousness absolutely? I don't think we must. Goff offers one way. The temporally integrated causality landscape offers another. Imagine if it turned out that ghosts were real. Let's accept for the sake of discussion that witnesses really see spectral apparitions in certain places. Let's accept that what is happening is real. Many witnesses see the same thing. There is really some specifiable phenomenon occurring. Does this mean we are required to believe in the supernatural? I would say that it does not. Rather, some new and previously unexplained natural phenomenon has been discovered, and the usual methods of scientific inquiry must be applicable. In the same way, the conscious mind is a real phenomenon. It must have an explanation, and it must exist in the physical world. There is no other world for it to exist in, in the sense that we normally mean exist. I have established in previous episodes that the physical world makes a difference to, or has causality on, the contents of the mind. That is only possible if the mind is a physical thing. Like our spectral apparition, if the phenomenon is real, then we can marshal science to learn about it. You might, in desperation, make the point that there might be plenty of things that are real in which we have no knowledge, of which we could have no knowledge. That might be so, but in, in the example of the ghost, we know that not to be the case, as the phenomenon is being seen by witnesses, and likewise for consciousness. I think, therefore I am. Given the option, which thing is the illusion, the material world or the conscious mind? Dennett and the illusionists solve the puzzle by opting to eliminate consciousness. I'll allow that both exist, but forced against the wall, I'd put my money on the other horse. Consciousness exists, but the material world only seems to be. Surely we human thinkers are confused about a great many things. The self, free will, time, cause and effect, but it is beyond the pale, in my opinion, 
to attribute so vast a confusion to us as to aver that we think in error that we exist. Mm -hmm.